in the time of ministry the Lord has given me thus far, I've often been asked questions regarding this chapter. And sometimes, I wouldn't say always, but sometimes the questions, they relate to the other parties. There are so many questions. Was Bathsheba tempting David? Did she not know that the palace overlooked where she was? Did she not have any understanding regarding the proximity of the two places? Could she not have resisted the king's overtures? Did she find it exciting to be pursued by this conquering king? Why did Joab go along with David's plan? Now we know Joab lacked honour in so many ways, but yet this was losing one of his most honourable men. Why did he go along with the scheme? What did he think about it? Was David's power such that Bathsheba and Joab had no power or recourse to resist? Did they want to do what they did? So many questions. Questions that ultimately cannot be answered. And the temptation sometimes is to try to be clever as a preacher because you know the story very well. And therefore I come with a, a familiar story and think to, well, I'm going to show you things you haven't thought about before. That's never usually a, a good prospect in the preacher's mind. It's not good to be inventive. and The scriptures do not tell us much about the mind or the emotions of the other parties. All we get from Bathsheba is verse number five, I am with child. And again, as for Joab, he goes along with David's rule. Uriah, the Hittite, he's the one that comes out as the honorable man. Verse 11 is remarkable. A remarkable testimony of a man of honor serving in the army. And so we've got to be careful. Careful to resist the temptation to answer every question. And I come at it this way because I want to encourage you with this thought. The text is given to us in a very deliberate way. It is calculated to cause us to focus upon David. That's the purpose. It's written in this way. It all comes in this way. That all of our minds attention would ultimately fall on David. He looks. He takes. He deceives. He plots. He murders. You see you don't understand how serious this is. Turn please to 1 Kings 15. Just very briefly. Because as David's days are past. 1 Kings 15 gives us a summary. 1 Kings 15 verse number 5. Because David did that which is right in the eyes of the Lord. And turned not aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life. Save only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Now we've already said there were other areas in which David falls. And he errs. But this is significantly pointed out in the word of God that we would learn and understand these things. And so back in our chapter, first, second Samuel, sorry, 11, and you see how it ends. There is this summary statement at the end of the chapter, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And so what are we to get at the end of all this? That David is responsible, that he's acted in a manner of rebellion against God, that God has seen his rebellion, and God is displeased with the conduct 
of his servant David. The story, again, I say is familiar. You have, of course, the events that the year expires. The idea there is that it's time, winter has passed more than likely, and it is time to resume the war with the Ammonites that began back in chapter 10. David sends Joab, but David remains in Jerusalem. And as you know the account, he sees Bathsheba. He brings Bathsheba into the palace. He lays with Bathsheba. She conceives. And then the cover-up begins. And so in verse 6, all the way through to the end of the chapter, there is the events regarding the cover-up. The initial failure to have Uriah to appear to be the father. That's the idea. If he can get Uriah to go to his home, he will then think that he's the father of this child. But of course that plan doesn't, doesn't accomplish. It's not successful because of Uriah's honor. And then you go on to the point where there's this, you know, this horrible scheme to bring Uriah's life to an end. You know, when you read this account, and we're not going to look at it in the detail that you may, you may think, but you read the account of all the planning and the, the language of Joab to David and the communication This is how far sin brings you. That you'll go to such lengths to cover up your iniquity. Forgetting all manner of honor and dignity. And bring a man's life to the end. And so as we look at this, and this is again where I, I, I certainly struggled somewhat this week to think about how to organize my thoughts. Because I was, I was going through the portion and just jotting down ideas and lessons. And so that's what you're going to get. You'll see in your outline there, there are seven blank spaces. Seven blank spaces because I want to present to you seven lessons that we are to learn from the ruinous acts of David. That's the first thing I want to do, and then we'll close by looking for the righteous son of David. But first of all, there are these moral lessons. Again, I'm conscious that I don't want to simply moralize this portion. But the Old Testament is given for our admonition. And so we are shown, we're, we're shown the mighty men of God, uh, as was said of Cromwell and the painting of Cromwell, warts and all. We're showing all the faults. You know, those who painted in Cromwell's days, they, were, they, were tended, they tended to be kind to their subjects. And so they removed the blemishes. Photoshop today. Well, when Cromwell's being painted, he wanted painted warts and all. And the Bible presents God's servants warts and all. We see Noah, we see Abraham and his lies, we see Jacob and his deceit, and we see David and his adulterous ways. And we're to learn from these things. So, so please don't see it simply as moralizing, but see it as a way in which God does reveal his mind and his will to his servants. We, we see the will of God in the conduct, the negative conduct here of David. So, number one, we'll move quickly through these things. Number one, we are more susceptible to sin when we neglect our responsibilities. I'm going to apologize immediately. I've no catch way to describe these things. I'm going to state these as they are. We are more susceptible to sin when we neglect our responsibilities. You see, verse one has to mean something. It's put here in a very deliberate fashion. David sent Joab and his servants, but David tarried still at Jerusalem. And so that last sentence of verse number one, it has to be significant. It's, it's setting the scene. And of course, the idea is that David ought to have been 
leading his army to war at that time. For it was the time when kings go forth to battle, but David tarried still at Jerusalem. Now what this does not mean, and here I think some of God's people have taken this in in an incorrect fashion, it does not mean that we ought never to rest. It doesn't mean that recreation is sinful. The Lord himself brought the disciples apart for a season to rest. And so it is not sinful inevitably to, to recreate. And so some people make this application. They say, well, David Tari's still at Jerusalem. He's, he's recreating, he's relaxing, and then sin comes. And every time you relax, you're going to fall into sin. That's not the point. What's happening here is that David is neglecting his God-given responsibilities. And when we neglect our God-given responsibilities, then we are more susceptible to sin. I'm going to seek to show you that uh, just in in a line of thoughts here. You see, every believer has a calling and callings. Vocations, responsibilities. Each and every one of you, you've got particular responsibilities. You're not a king with an army. I think that's correct. None of you are kings with armies under your authority. So that's not your calling. You're not going to tarry at Jerusalem. But what you may do is you may neglect your responsibility. And in neglecting your callings, you may then in turn fall into sin. Your calling, first and foremost, of course, is to be a child of God. You're called to that. It's a holy calling, a good calling, a high and heavenly calling. You're called to be a child of God. And you've got responsibilities as a child of God. Private and public. Private in terms of walking with God in your home. Walking with God in the quiet place. Going into the closet and shutting the door. Praying to your father in secret. Those things are your responsibilities as a private Christian in this world. And you neglect those things. And there is a propensity towards sin. And of course to Christian you've got public responsibilities. You're to not forsake the assembly yourselves together. That's a public responsibility. You're duty-bound. I say that with, with, with a very clear purpose. You're duty-bound to publicly worship God. That's your responsibility. Then you have a calling in the home place. As a husband, a father, a wife, a mother, a child. There are these responsibilities. You know, young people, you have a calling. What? You have a calling in the home. The Bible sets out your responsibilities to honour your father and mother, to obey your parents. Those are your responsibilities in the home. That's your calling. And of course, as a husband, as a father, a wife, a mother, you have particular responsibilities. Then you've got your your calling, if you like, your vocation in terms of your, your duties and responsibilities. For me, I'm called to be a pastor. I have those responsibilities that attach to being a pastor. All of you, you've, you've different responsibilities in that regard. But you still have them. You have callings. Now, when we are not responsible in our callings, what we're doing then is we are disobeying the will of God for our lives. Isn't that right? Because you think of those areas, Christian, home, society, we're going back again to our Bible studies in the Sabbath school, the creation ordinances, to worship and to be in your home and to be faithful in work. Those areas, are they, they, they are the, these are the will of God for the believer in every generation and every place. These are your callings. 
And when you neglect your calling and your faithfulness in those things, you're guilty of disobedience. And you grieve the Spirit. And your conscience becomes less sensitive. You're not living before God every day. You're not walking with God. That's what's happening here for David. He's not walking with the Lord. Ultimately, he's neglected his duty as a king over God's army. And in light of that, I believe he is then susceptible to the temptations that come. And so, a very simple charge. Do not neglect your God-given responsibilities. Secondly, sexual sin is a common sin that brings great destruction. I know, before you say anything, I know that all sins are sin. Every sin is rebellion against God. But the Bible, and indeed church history, highlights the evils of sexual sin and the destruction that is caused when men and women fall into sexual sin. It is highlighted in the Word of God as a sin with particularly grievous consequences. You see, turn across, please, to 1 Corinthians. You know, in, in 1 and 2 Corinthians, again, in the Corinthian, you know, the, the language of Corinth, of Corinth, this idea that was marked by great immorality. It wasn't just Corinth, of course. Ephesus was the same. All these cities were marked by great immorality. But in Corinthians, there is the highlighting, particularly, of the area of sexual sin. Chapter 5 is all about fornication in the house of God and that fornication being ignored. But you get down to chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians and the verse number 18. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Some of these things, I'll be honest here, some of that is difficult to understand what it actually means. Our sins are often with our body. But there's a nature in which sexual sin is particularly against our own body. And I think it goes back to chapter 6 and the verse number 15. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? For two, so thee, shall one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. And so it seems to be the case that for the believer, the union of the Lord with their body is such that when they commit fornication, they are violating their union with Christ. In a very remarkable way. And so verse number 19 says, What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have God, and you're not your own, you're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And so there is this highlighting of the sexual sin involved in fornication and the implication of all manner of sexual sins. And so what does Paul teach? Chapter 7, marriage. That's what Paul highlights. He goes into chapter 7. deals with the, the whole principle of marriage. God's ethic for sexual purity is marriage. Simple. In covenant faithfulness. And see, we live in a day when, as you well know, I don't need to spell it out to you. Sexual sin is upon everybody's attention. It's paraded as something to be proud of. There is no shame as there used to be. Even heterosexual sin, there is no shame in these things. There would have been in the past. There's not anymore. 
You see, what we understand when it comes to David's sin here, David sins easily with Bathsheba because he's already neglected God's standard for sexual ethics. Wives multiplying, concubines, there is, if you like, there's a a mass number of women in the palace at David's beck and call. He's abandoned God's order. And this is simply another step as he abandons God's order for sexual purity. And so I just highlight the facts again. Sexual sin is a common sin that brings about great destruction. And marriage, marriage is God's will for sexual purity. Pornography brings other parties to the marriage. Before marriage, sexual immorality is taking that which doesn't belong to you. And after marriage, well, just read with David and Bathsheba. If any man thinks he stands, take heed lest he falls. Thirdly, sin usually, and here's a very general concept, sin usually involves several stages. Again, back into 2 Samuel chapter 11, uh, you see the verbs that are used here in the text. Verse number 2, David arose, walked, saw, sent, inquired, sent, took, Lay. You see all the verbs that are used one after the other. Again, Pink makes the understar makes the observation that it's an unusual thing for a man to rise out of his bed in the evening tide. He's been in his bed during the day. It's not night yet. And so there's all manner of things going in the background here. What has happened to David in his heart? We don't know, but we do know that he involves in these stages whereby he sins against God. You see, turn across, please, to James chapter 1. For in James chapter 1, we see this, this matter of the stages that come about in sin. James chapter 1. And here I, I'm going to borrow Pink's thoughts in this regard. For James 1 verse 14 says, Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. And Pink makes the point that David was drawn away by fleshly ease and indolence. Secondly, he was then enticed. Drawn away of his own lust and enticed. He was enticed by the sight of a beautiful woman. Thirdly, when lust hath conceived, lust was conceived, it brought forth sin. It brought forth the sin of premeditated adultery. And then what happens next? When it's finished, it bringeth forth death. And of course, he observes the progress of sin in David's actions in the death of Uriah the Hittite. Stages. Why do I mention stages? Because when the believer understands there's progress in the matter of sin, it might help you as you think of that to realize that you're heading down a sinful path and step in to stop the temptation before it progresses. So the stage of sin here is really a call from God to be watchful, to be alert and be attentive. You see, when you come, and we're going to look at this later on, we can bike through this section in David's response. You see, if you're being watchful, you will remember that sin is against God. 
The first temptation, and you see as David sees this woman, the first temptation, David's thought should have been what he thinks in Psalm 51, against thee only have I sinned. If he's watchful there, he stops at that point. He realizes that to proceed right now is a sin against the holy God. It's also important to understand that sin is not only against God, but it's against sense. It's not rational. You see, we fall into sin when we're enticed and consumed by lust. And again, this is a general concept, not just in sexual sin. And we sin against sense. And what David does here is just, it is blatantly foolish. And so it is for us when we fall into sin. And sin is also against grace. It's against God, it's against sense, it's against grace. And keeping those things in our minds ought to stop us. See, turn, uh, I'm still in James and my Bible, turn back to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, because we see in Titus chapter 2 that the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Now, that grace appears in Christ Jesus, we know that. But the grace does not begin in Christ. David himself was a recipient of what? The said of God, the grace of God, the loving kindness of God. And the grace of God that David enjoyed ought to have taught him to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. But live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And so when you think about the steps of sin, and you think to yourself, well, how can I prevent sin? Because that's what you want to do. You don't want to follow David here. So how do you prevent sin? Well, you remember the sins against God. It's against sense. It's against grace. You remember those things. You rehearse those things in your mind. And so to do that, you're in the Word. You're in the word of God, both law and gospel. You make a covenant with self. Think of Job chapter 31, verse 1. I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? Many sins in the Bible begin with the look. Eve saw the forbidden fruit. Job guards his eye gate. They would not sin and think upon a maid. David failed to put a guard upon his eyes. And he falls into sin. So the steps occur, the stages occur. And in those stages, at any point, David could have stopped. But he didn't. Fourthly, and this is connected, of course. Sin deadens the conscience, making other sins easier. So you go back to Second Samuel chapter 11. What happens? Well, the, the hinge in the chapter there is verse number 5. All will be well. Nothing will be found out until Bathsheba comes and says and tells David, I am with child. The private sin will now be made public. And the first thought of David is, how can I cover this up? At that point, David had the opportunity to confess his sin. To own his sin, to confess his sin, to forsake his sin. Of course, his son will teach later on that he that covered his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaken them shall have mercy. But David engaged and covered up. His reputation mattered. It's an interesting thing. He cares about what others would think about him at this time. And his reputation is more important to him than the life of another man. And so he goes about this process 
David, the mighty soldier, disregards the honor and the life of Uriah. His treatment of Uriah is absolutely disgraceful. This man of honor and valor, again, verse number 11, you cannot speak more highly of Uriah and his conduct and his thoughts regarding the things of God. But David is so consumed with sin that his conscience is deadened and it makes other sins easier. Isn't that often the case? Do we see that in our children? They steal and then they lie and they continue to lie and they continue to cover up these things because what sin does, one sin makes another sin that builds to another sin and all in all our conscience are being deadened towards sin. Fifthly, previous victories and faithfulness are no guarantee against serious falls. David's fall into sin here is not at a time in his life when he's just been brought out of the sheepfold into the king's palace. He's walked with God for many years. He has seen great victories in the work of God. He's conquered giants and conquered armies. And he's known the guidance and the direction of God in so many ways. And so his fall comes after these victories. Like Noah's, the preacher and the builder becomes the immoral drunkard. Or like Peter, the preacher and the healer becomes the Lord's denier. You see, faithfulness and victories do not immunize us from succumbing to temptation. And so we must watch and pray at all times. Pink seeks to answer the question as to why does David fall? And refers to the Lord's suffering David to fall and sin as he did. And in so doing, God has graciously, here's Pink's words, God has graciously given a most solemn warning to believers in middle age and elder Christians also. I'm going to look straight ahead. Middle age and elder Christians. There's a warning for you here. Owen says this, Many conquerors have been ruined by their carelessness after a victory. And many have been spiritually wounded after great successes against sin. David was so. His great surprisal, his fall into sin, was after a long profession, manifold experience of God and watchful keeping of himself from his iniquity. And hence, in particular, hath it come to pass that the profession of many hath declined in their old age or riper time. They had given over the work of mortifying sin before their work was at an end. There is no way for us to pursue sin in its unsearchable habitation but by being endless in our pursuits. The command God gives in Colossians chapter 3, namely mortify therefore your members, is as necessary for them to observe who are toward the end of their race as those who are but at the beginning of it. Speaks for itself, doesn't it? Wherever you're at today, be aware of the danger. He said, oh, preacher, I have no notion of anything like this. These things sometimes come by surprise. I know men, and they've fallen into adultery at a point in their lives. And if you'd asked them six months earlier, have you any plans to commit adultery with your wife? They'd be horrified at the thought. And of course, it's not only true for men, it's also true for women. Proverbs makes it clear there are 
women who engage in sexual sin to their disgrace. And so, I'm keeping this general, yes, but the particular application, of course, falls to those of us in advancing years of life that we must watch ourselves mortifying our members, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection. This might not be a warning for you today, but it might be next week or next month or next year. Sixthly, God's silence or like God not stopping David does not imply God's complacency with David's actions. I said to you about Pink, Pink, A.W. Pink, the commentator, has, has asked the question as to, well, why, why does God allow David to fall in this fashion? Why does God allow this to proceed? And I don't think we can answer that fully. He gives some very interesting suggestions But what I do know is that verse number 27 makes it clear that whilst God allows David to proceed, the thing that David does displeases the Lord, and David is responsible for that. You see, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good, Proverbs chapter 15. But turn, please, to Psalm 50, the 50th Psalm. Because as God rebukes the people for their covenant breaking. Verse 21 says this. These things hast thou done. Well what was it? Well back to 17. They hate his instruction. They cast the words behind their backs. They saw a thief. They consent with him. And has been partaker with adulterers. Thou givest thy mouth to evil and thy tongue free with deceit. Thou sittest and speakest against thy brother, thou slanderest thine own mother's son. These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such a one as thyself, but I will reprove thee and set them in order before thine eyes. Now consider this, ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. Again, I don't know whether some of you have engaged in a sinful practice for some time. And you think to yourself, well, nothing's happened to me. I know certainly the young people and they find themselves, they enter their late teens, early twenties, and they find themselves engaging in a sinful practice. They've been raised in the things of God and, well, nothing's happened to me. And they presume that silence means that God is in favor or at least not displeased with their actions. But that is not the case. And 2 Samuel 11 makes it clear that God is displeased with David's sin. Seventhly, the believer, the true believer can fall a long way into sin. It's just a fact, really. It's a tragic fact, but it's a fact. I say, I don't, I don't know why God doesn't stop this sin at different points. Now, undoubtedly, it's for our good, it's for our benefit or admonition or exhortation tonight but what it does show it shows just how far you can fall into sin you see we we shouldn't dabble with sin and presume that God will stop us I, I know God will not let me go too far into this particular sin it's often said correctly that sin will take you further than you want to go now there are two ways in which to take this because we know the end We know Nathan, we know the rebuke, we know the repentance, the restoration. 
We know those things. And so therefore, there is a sense in which this comes with comfort to our souls. That though a believer can fall far into sin, God can restore a greatly fallen saint. Some of you may have people in your hearts and minds and you think, well, for a time they were in the house of God. They walked with God and yet they've fallen so far and so, so long and it seems to be they're lost altogether. They must be apostate and reprobate. God allows David to fall very, very far. I think in part that we would be encouraged that God is able to restore ones who fall so far. So if you need to pray for someone tonight, pray with renewed hope. That God is able to raise up those who have fallen far. But it also comes the challenge. Don't presume. As a child of God, read these things and read the consequences of solemn warnings. The misery, the destruction, the impact upon the testimony of God and the family of David, all of those things. The repercussions of this sin go far and they go long. God is not mocked. Whatever man reaps, that shall he, or whatever man sows, that shall he reap. So may God have mercy upon us that we understand these things clearly. So those are some lessons from the ruinous acts of David. But is that the point? Is that the only point of this passage? Well, I think we're also in this passage to therefore look for the righteous son of David. David is good. He's a good king. But he's not good enough. And when you read this section, and you read all the points and the even the, the matter that he's given this promise, and his kingdom's going to never, ever end, and you've all of this coming, and particularly in light of the expectation of the Messiah, and then this crashing event happens. You're going along and along, and David's doing this and that and the other thing, and everything's moving forward in the right direction, and suddenly it all comes crashing down. Let's turn to Second Samuel 22, please. For as David comes to the end of his days, he reflects upon the Lord as his rock, verse number 2, his fortress, his deliverer, the God of my rock in whom I will trust. He's reflecting upon the goodness of God and the mercies of God. And he realized that God is kind and gracious to him. He understands that he needs a saviour. I will call on the Lord. When the ways of death compassed me, the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sores of hell, the snares of death prevented me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God. You see, he comes at the end of his days and he understands. He understands he needs a saviour. And in all of this, he's pointing forward. He's pointing forward to the fact that the king is to a righteous king. Chapter 23 of Second Samuel. He understands he needed a saviour himself. But verse 23, or chapter 23, verse number 2, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as a light of the morning when the sun riseth. Even in morning without clouds, he's referring here to Messiah. You see, turn across for one last portion, Jeremiah chapter 23. For when the people of God are facing captivity and they're about to lose as they see the scepter in Judah 
Verse 5 of Jeremiah 23 says this, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. David is good, but he is not good enough. But God will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord or righteousness. And so as we read of the fall of David into sin, we read at the same time, and we long and we hope, even so, come Messiah. We, of course, are those who are looking back to Christ who has already come. But reading Second Samuel before the coming of Christ, there should be this longing within the Jewish reader. May the Messiah still come. May the righteous branch still come. And of course, when you get to the Gospels, you see that Christ is indeed, Christ Jesus is indeed the righteous branch. He was tempted and did no sin. The perfectly righteous son of David, who is the suitable substitute, the one who can pay for our sins because he has no sins of his own, and the one who lives a life of perfect righteousness. Christ's heart never succumbed to sexual immorality. You think of a woman to lust after her, the Lord teaches, you commit adultery in your heart. Christ's heart was never, never tainted with sexual immorality in his heart. And his life was pure from sin. And so David is referred to in Romans chapter 4 as a man who knew the blessedness of one unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. Christ came as a son of David and lived a perfect life. So that David is now in heaven, covered by the righteousness of his greater son. Romans points to David as an example of one who's enjoyed righteousness. And in Romans chapter 3 it says, Whom God set forth the propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past. David's sins are pardoned. We'll get to that. He's a cleansed sinner. And Christ's death is, if you like, God declaring his righteousness. The price of David's sin was paid upon David's son upon the cross. It's it's wonderful to think that as he falls into sin with Bathsheba, it, it drives our expectation of a yet greater son to come. Who actually will live and die that David might live. That's the gospel. And so we see the tragedy of falling into sin. And it caused us personally to say, Lord, save my sin. Cover all my sins from view. David came to know that. He rejoiced in that. And so must we. It is an awful tragedy. It's a tragic tale of a mighty man of God falling so far into sin. But where sin abounds, grace doth much more abound. God in his mercy was able to cleanse David from all of his sins. So may our hearts, as we leave here tonight, may our hearts go to Christ. 
Once more we find ourselves knowing our own sin, knowing our own depravity. May we rest upon the righteousness of another. Let's bow please in a word of prayer. The eternal God, we pray that in your mercy you'd help us to be careful to keep a watch upon our eyes, a guard upon our hearts. Help us, Lord, to learn the lessons from this tragic fall. That, Lord, even as we would discern the sin in David, we realize, O Lord, that what are we but by your grace? And so protect us, guard us. We pray for any in this congregation, any attached to our congregation who have fallen greatly into sin, we pray that their sin would be exposed and that they would know what it is to find repentance and come to peace with thee. We pray for some even in this gathering, perhaps out of Christ. May they realize, O Lord, that mercy is found in thee, that you're able to cleanse them from all of their sins. Oh, God, help us in this crazy world of such immorality. Help us to walk in uprightness and purity for the honor and glory of Christ's name. Amen.